as we shift gears a little, as we move towards uh, the, this first message in our new series in the book of Daniel, which we're really excited about, yeah, um, we're going to do so by starting with a scripture reading, and our friend Vicki's going to come, and she's going to read for us. Good morning. This is the word of God from Daniel chapter 1. In the third year, or first year, no, it's the third, sorry. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim of Judah into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and, no and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the, liter the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief, chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he, gave, he called Belshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach, and Azariah, he called Abednego. Amen. Good job, Vicki. And uh, yeah, my apologies. <laughs> my apologies in front of the whole congregation to all who serve on the scripture reading team. For the next 14 weeks as we're in the book of Daniel, it's just going to be a lot of that. The secret is just say them confidently and act like you know what you're doing and no one will ever know. So it's good. Uh, my name is Aaron. If you're new, I'm one of the pastors here. Glad to have you. And we are starting today a new teaching series through the book of Daniel. Uh, we love as a church family to go most commonly just to go line by line through books of the Bible because we are convinced that the scripture is truthful. The scripture is God's word. And what you need more than the opinions or the good advice of some person, what you need is an encounter with the truth of God and the word of God. And so uh, that's why we <clears throat> like doing this as a church family. And uh, I want to just say a couple of quick things by way of introduction to the series. First of all, uh, I'm not going to spend a ton of time today setting up the historical context of the writing of the book. Um, if you would like more kind of information on the composition and authorship and the date and all that sort of stuff, uh, I have a gift for you on the website. Actually, I have two gifts for you. PDFs that are like 40 pages long each, uh, introductions from two different commentaries. You can go on the website, you can download them, you can nerd out to your heart's content, and you'll be the life of all of the parties over the next couple weeks as we kick off football season. Uh, the other thing though I want to say is I'm just going to apologize to everybody right up front because this sermon series is a little bit of a bait and switch. The first half of the book of Daniel is uh, all of the stories that you're probably familiar with. Even people who aren't necessarily churchgoers have probably heard of Daniel in the lion's den or the three men in the fiery furnace as, you know, St. Johnny Cash sings about. And you can, you can kind of call to mind, maybe if you grew up in church, you know, those, you know those flannel graphs, you know, like the fuzzy boards and then you have like little people you could walk on. I literally was searching online for one of those. I'm hoping to have one here in the next few weeks. We'll see. Uh, <clears throat> but then... 
halfway through the book of Daniel, it takes a very sharp left turn away from all the stories that we're familiar with and into dreams and visions and very esoteric prophecies where like beasts are coming up out of the sea and they have horns and the horns are like talking to each other. It's very strange stuff. And so just be forewarned, you know, about mid-October, things are going to get strange around here, okay? But in the meantime, today, I want to introduce us to the story of Daniel and what is happening here. And before we do anything else, I'd like to invite you to pray with me that God would use this time to draw us closer to him. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we bring our hearts, we bring our fears, we bring our worries, we bring our longings. God, we come to you empty-handed today. God, I confess that I have nothing that will help these people if you do not speak through me. And so I ask that you would guard my lips and you would direct my words and I might lift up the name of Jesus and I might bring encouragement and hope to this group of people. God, for all of us, I pray that you would give us soft hearts and teachable hearts. <clears throat> that we might receive the truth of your word, that we might uh, be, be built up in courage and in perseverance. And while we explore this theme and this idea of living as exiles, Holy Spirit, would you bring these words to life in our hearts and in our minds, that we might more closely love and follow and serve our Savior Jesus, in whose good name we pray. And everyone said, amen. I want to ask you if you can think of a time where you just wanted to go home. Maybe for some of you, it's right now, okay? But like like a long day at work, you just want to go home. You just want your couch and your fridge. Maybe you're on a vacation. You guys know that family vacation thing where it's like, it's so fun, but it's so exhausting having fun. And you're in a hotel and you're eating out and you're just, I just want my pots and pans and my dishes and my bed. You guys know that feeling? I just want my bed, Maybe it's a little more serious. Think of people who have maybe had an extended stay in the hospital, months in the hospital, and when do I get to go home? And well, soon we're thinking, and the doctors are making educated guesses, and well, maybe, and just, you just want to go home. Now, if you can take that feeling and take that experience that you've had and imagine that you were then forcibly removed from your home, and you were taken to a different land, you were taken to a different place where no one spoke your language, people thought differently, dressed differently, acted differently, worshipped differently, and everything about the comforts of home was completely disrupted except there was no hope or guarantee of ever getting to go back home. Can you kind of emotionally put yourself there? That's the emotional state of someone like Daniel. And his, free, his three friends, Hananiah and, and, and Azrael and, 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 and Mashiach, these, these, these men were taken forcibly from their homeland in an event that is known as the exile. If you think about the history of the people of Israel, there are two really formative events. The first one is the exodus. And the exodus gets a lot of movies made about it because there's a happy ending. They cross over the Red Sea and into the promised land and, and, you know, Charlton Heston shows up and everything's good and happy. But I would submit to you that this event known as the exile is every bit as formative to the people of Israel, but we don't see movies made about it. It doesn't get as much popularity. It's, 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 a, it's a 
tragedy. It's a dark chapter. And so if you were one of these young men, forcibly removed from your home, maybe you'd sit and think about the the story. How, How did we end up here? How did we get to this place? How did it all go so wrong? You think back to the beginning of your family history when God shows up in the life of a man named Abraham. And he tells Abraham, he says, I want you to leave your home in the east. I want you to leave your home somewhere in the vicinity of Babylon. I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you. And I want you to travel there. I want you to trust me there. And I'm going to use you and I'm going to use your family to be a blessing to all of the nations of the earth. We're going to set up a new home base in this land of Canaan. And I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the grains of sand on the seashore. And they're going to be a part of my work to redeem the brokenness and the fallenness of humanity. And you start reading the story of Abraham and his son, Isaac and Isaac's son, Jacob. And then Jacob has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. But one of the sons, a guy named Joseph ends up being betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery in Egypt. And, and there God gives him this gift of dream interpretation And though he is a slave and though he is low in the house of Egypt, through this gift of dream interpretation, he rises to the ranks to become the second most important person just underneath the Pharaoh himself. Joseph's important in the history of of the people of Israel, but that didn't last. And new Pharaohs came along who who didn't know Joseph and didn't know his family. And and eventually the Egyptians uh, enslaved the people of Israel and put them to hard labor for 400 years until one day the Lord shows up through his servant Moses and deliverance happens. They they cross out of Egypt over the Red Sea and, and the exodus is this formative event in the history of Israel. And they come to the edge of the land and there's this big ceremony. You can read about it in the book of Deuteronomy. It's, it's the land covenant. God speaks through Moses and he makes this promise. He says, look, I'm setting before you today life or death. You have two, you have two choices. You can obey my laws. You can walk in my ways. You can fulfill all the statutes that I've given to you. And if you do that, if you're faithful, you will live for a long time in the land that I've given to you. But if you're unfaithful, I will remove you. I will remove you from this land. And friends, we know that our God is gracious. We know that our God is is patient, but our God is also not a pushover. Amen? And so he gives them this choice and all the people say, yes, we will do it. We will fulfill the covenant. We will be faithful. And then you turn the page and you go into the book of Judges. How many of you were here when we went through the book of Judges? Chaos reigns supreme. In Judges 21, this line, it's actually repeated a handful of times. It says, in those days, there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And none of the people were faithful. They, were, they, they invented some real creative and horrible ways to be unfaithful to the commandments of the Lord. And chaos reigns and the people are crying out, we need a king, we need a king. And so the Lord uh, raises up eventually a king, a man after his own heart named David. And David was certainly not a perfect person. He had major flaws. But overall, he is described as being one who has a heart after God. And David brings unity to the land. And then under his son, King Solomon, there is unprecedented prosperity. I'm currently right now, just in my own personal reading plan, I'm reading through the books of first and second Kings. I just started second Kings yesterday. And there's a line in first Kings that says in those days under Solomon, the people of Israel were as 
numerous as the sand on the seashore. I'm like, I'm not the brightest crayon in the shed or however the saying goes, but I'm, I think that's about the promises to Abraham coming true. And, and it says that everyone sat under their own vine and everyone ate from their own fig tree. And like, that's the delicacy. That's the, that's the gelato of the ancient Near Eastern world. It's just like, you know, just sitting under a fig tree. Just, I want treats. And you just eat. Like, it's just joy and happiness and prosperity and all of the promises that God made about living in the land and flourishing. They're all coming true. But you keep reading the book of Kings and the book of Chronicles and you see that you can't even get past Solomon's own son, Rehoboam, before civil war happens. And the people are unfaithful to the Lord and the the 10 northern tribes split off and they call themselves Israel and the southern tribe of of Judah stays kind of by itself, Judah and Benjamin together. So there's northern tribes and southern tribes. And you just start reading the story uh, after the civil war. It's a a major uh, event in the history of Israel. And you just see in Kings and Chronicles, just bad king after bad king after bad king. And new rebellious ways. There, there's these lines, like I said, I'm reading through the, the book of Kings right now. And it's like, and this guy was even more wicked than his father. And you go to the next king. It's like, and this guy was even more wicked than his father. And then they're like, and then there was one good king. But then his son was even more wicked than the one before. It's just horrible. Apostasy and faithlessness and idol worship. And God starts sending prophets to issue these prophetic warnings. Guys like Isaiah or or people like Jeremiah who actually lived at the same time as Daniel. And Jeremiah writes one part. He says, I've been warning you guys for 23 years. Just, Just Jeremiah himself. The warnings go back 900 years, back to the time of the Exodus that God said, if you do not remain faithful, I will remove you from the land. God is patient. God is gracious. God is long suffering. He is slow to anger. But there comes a point where the southern tribes of Judah get to watch Assyria attack the northern tribes of Israel and start to take those people away into captivity. This is known as the Assyrian captivity. And the people in Judah, the southern tribes, had about 100 years to sit and watch that happen and think and pray. Maybe we should get our acts together. Maybe we should have a righteous king who leads us. But there's just more sin and more rebellion and more apostasy and more faithlessness until one Day, Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar came to Babylon, came to Jerusalem, and besieged it. This is somewhere around the year 605 BC. And there's actually a period of time, about a uh, roughly 20 to 30 year period of time, where there was war between Babylon and Jerusalem. There's this first deportation where Nebuchadnezzar installs a puppet king that he thinks will kind of keep the peace. That puppet king tries to betray Nebuchadnezzar, doesn't want to pay tribute anymore. Nebuchadnezzar comes back and just burns the place to the ground, destroys the temple that Solomon built, the beautiful temple, one of the ancient wonders of the world that people would come to see. This is the first deportation. This is God making good on his promise that if you do not remain faithful to the covenant that we have made, I will remove you from the land. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. So this is God's active work. It's not just politics. It's not just earthly kingdoms at war. This is the Lord God, active and involved. And he gave some of the vessels of the house of God. These are the the implements of worship. They were taken from 
the temple of God where, where worship of the one true God is supposed to happen. And he brought them to the land of Shinar to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. This is God versus God. This is Marduk versus Yahweh. And the author uses the word Shinar. It's, it's at this time when, when this book was written, Shinar would have been a very old fashioned word. Nobody used it anymore. It was, it was the empire of Babylon. It'd be what we would call, you know, Southeastern Iraq today. But the author of Daniel intentionally uses the word Shinar because in the book of Genesis, there's this story about a group of people conspiring together and saying, let's build a tower that will reach up to the heavens and we'll be rulers and gods over all things. And it says that they built that tower of Babel, Babylon in the land of Shinar. This is the author explicitly saying that this is a conflict that is as old as humanity itself. Who will we worship? Who will be faithful to? Who will win out? And so these people are taken away into exile. And it's where we start to see some of the deep laments and songs of of pain that come out during this time. There's a book called Lamentations. It's attributed to the prophet Jeremiah. And it's just a really sorrowful song few verses here. So how she sits alone, the city once crowded with people. She who was great among the nations has become like a widow. The princess among the provinces has been put to forced labor. She weeps bitterly during the night with tears on her cheeks. There's no one to offer her comfort. Not one from all her lovers. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile following affliction and harsh slavery. She lives among the nations, but finds no rest. All her pursuers have overtaken her in narrow places. And there's a Psalm, Psalm 137, one of the last songs in the collection. It just says by the, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and we wept when we thought of Zion and we remembered our home city. And we, we went and we hung up our, our harps and our lyres on the trees because our captors required us to sing and they tormented us and they mocked us with, with joy and mirth saying, oh, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? a heartbreaking chapter in the history of the people of God. Verse three. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans is like one of the tribes, one of the states within the Babylonian empire. And they're the ones that are kind of the wise men, the advisors, the political ruling class. If you were here uh, last Advent, we talked about the Magi. It's kind of that sort of a thing. It's like one part political advisor, one part Hogwarts school for witchcraft. Like it's, it's kind of this interesting blend 
And he, he says, I need you to go get me some, some youths, okay? Go get me some young people. Most commentators and scholars would say that these young men are around the age of 15 or 16 years old. So these are teenagers. Teenagers, you, you paying attention? This is you. These are young men. They're, they're good looking. Go find, like, hey, we, we need good looking young men to stand by the king. They need to be smart because we're going to teach them and train them. So they need to not be idiots. We need to be able to teach them and train them the language and the customs and the way of the Chaldeans. And actually, it'd be really great if they were from the, the, the royal family or at least from the upper class. So the king, verse five, assigned them a daily portion of the food the king ate and of the wine that he drank. So they're not just going to get any food and wine. They're going to get the king's very food and the king's very wine. And they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they're going to come stand before the king and he's going to evaluate them. Why? This is a political tactic. Big empire requires big bureaucracy. It's hard to rule over the entire Arabian Peninsula down into Egypt, up through the Levant and into Syria. Like that's a big empire before cell phones existed. And the way you're going to do it is you're going to take smart young men. You're going to completely indoctrinate them. It's educate. You're going to assimilate them. You're going to butter them up by giving them the king's food and the king's wine. This is going to be, this is going to be good food and good wine. And they're going to feel important and they're going to feel uh, special and they're going to be trained. And then some will stay in Babylon and others will go back to their homeland where they'll be able to keep the peace and rule over the people on behalf of the king. This is a complete and total political move. Go educate them. Now, among these, so there's, there's a group that are taken. But verse 6 says, Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs, if, kids, if you don't know what a eunuch is, please ask your parents after service. Some rabbis actually speculate, the, the scripture doesn't tell us, but they speculate that actually these young men were themselves made to be eunuchs. If they were to serve in this way before the king, it would be common practice. We don't know that, but it's possible. <clears throat> and again, if you have questions about that, my email address, as always, is shane at soundcitybiblechurch.com. The chief of the eunuchs renamed them. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. This is, this is all, you know, this isn't just some little detail. This is actually really important information because if they're going to be these rulers, kind of ruling on behalf of the king, they need to have their identity reset. Sharon Pace is a scholar out of a Marquette University, a Catholic scholar, and she writes this. Throughout the Bible, renaming typically occurred to indicate that person's new status or function. The renaming of Daniel and his friends potentially evidences a profound change. Each of their original Hebrew names is theophoric, meaning it's derived from one of the names of the God of Israel. All of their names have meanings and they're all about God. Yet the Babylonian official gives them names in honor of the gods of Babylon. These names are symbols not only of the oppressor's culture, but also of the very gods that the Babylonians believed granted them such power. So, Daniel, Daniel, means God is my judge. And Belteshazzar, scholars are a little bit conflicted on what specifically it means, but they're all pretty clear that the Bel is reference to the god of Babylon, known as Bel, whose other name is Marduk. 
So it's something having to do with now my allegiance is to Marduk or Bel. Hananiah means in Hebrew, the Lord is gracious. And Shadrach means I am under the command of Aku, who is another one of the Babylonian deities. Mishael means who is like our God. And Meshach means who is like Aku. And Azariah means the Lord, Yahweh, is my helper. And Abednego means I'm a servant of Nabu. Sharon Pace continues, the, the youths have been captured, brought to a foreign land, enslaved for palace service, forced to be reacculturated for three years, and renamed to honor the idols of the despots and to symbolize their expected assimilation. Their survival requires tenacity under pressing challenges. And these first six chapters of Daniel are there one, se- one challenge after another, one challenge after another. So here's the first challenge, verse 8. But Daniel, teenage boy, young man, resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. And therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. So if you're familiar with Judaism, you may have heard of kosher, eating kosher. Meaning that way back after God freed the the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, he gave them laws. And among those laws was a certain set of food laws. And to us, maybe that seems a little bit strange as, as modern Westerners who eat anything and sometimes things we probably even shouldn't be eating. Like, I don't know. I've had an, I had octopus recently. I'm like, I don't know if that was meant to be eaten. It kind of tastes like a rubber hose, but I ate it. Uh, but, but God gave them these food laws. And it, see, it's not God being like restrictive, like this is bad and you don't do this, but it's God saying, I'm a different type of God. I'm different than the other gods of the ancient Near East. I don't require sacrifices because I'm needy. I ask for sacrifices because I want your loyalty and I want your hearts. I'm just going to pour out my grace upon you. And God said, I'm a different type of God. And so therefore, I want you to be different type of people. I want you to stand out among the nations. And one of the ways that the people of Israel were instructed to stand out and to be holy and to be different was by not eating certain foods, particularly pork and shellfish and some of the ones that we know about kosher eating. The book of Daniel doesn't explicitly tell us what was being served. And there wouldn't necessarily be anything wrong with drinking the wine. But Daniel, in his youthful zeal says, I'm not going to cross this line. This is the first challenge. So he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave, here's God being active again. He gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, Hey, listen, buddy, I am scared of my Lord, the King. Nebuchadnezzar, you heard of him? He's like conquering pretty much everybody these days. And so uh, he's assigned you to have this food and drink. Why should he see that you're in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? You're going to get, it's my head on the line. You're going to endanger my head with the king. I have one job, feed you, fatten you up, educate you, make you look good. I got to present you to the king. And now you're talking some craziness about not wanting to eat our food. I'm going to get in trouble, please. Do not rock the boat. So Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over, there's a steward, there's a eunuch, there's a chief of eunuchs, it's very bureaucratic. He talked to him, the one, the steward who was over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He says, hey, I got an idea. Test us for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. That's it. Just 
going like full hardcore vegan for 10 days and let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. I love this because this is Daniel operating in Proverbs-like street-level wisdom. He is going to be given dreams. He's going to be given supernatural visions. He's going to go into a very different type of wisdom in upcoming chapters. But right here, he's saying, we've got a problem. We've got an issue. Let's, let, me, let, me, let me work it here. Let me talk. Let's, let's chat a little bit and see if we couldn't come to an arrangement. So he listened to them in this matter and he tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh. That's good, apparently. Uh, Babylonians wanted them to be fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and just said, have at it. Vegan club is now in effect. It's pretty remarkable. Pretty remarkable. I James Montgomery Boyce, a Presbyterian Bible teacher, says this. He says, do you find it a very little thing? Do you see Daniel's decision as the immaturity and foolishness of youth? Would you have acted as Daniel and his friends did in these circumstances, or would you have just gone along with your great benefactor's desires? Well, it was a small thing, and yet that is just the point. For it is in the small matters that great victories are won. This is where decisions to live a holy life are made. Not in the big things, though they come, if the little things are neglected, but in the details of life. Verse 17. So as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all. There's God giving again. Man, God's real active in this chapter, is he not? You might be tempted to think with all this stuff that Nebuchadnezzar is doing, that he's the one who's in charge. But God's working. God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, at the end of the three years, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. Just really quick pause. Do you think that might have been hard? To stand before the very ruler who is responsible for removing you forcibly from your homeland, conquering your city, burning places? I mean, just now here you are standing in front of him. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. I want to make a really brief but important point that's going to be helpful for us as we go through the book of Daniel. One of the things that sometimes happens when we look at books like Daniel, stories like Daniel, is... We have to learn how to live in this tension. These people are put forward for us as good examples to follow. Amen? And so we need to learn from their example. We should seek to emulate their courage. We should seek to emulate their wisdom. We should seek to emulate their faithfulness to God. And yet there, we, we, we run into a problem when we turn a, a moral like that into moralizing. Here's what it could sound like. It might sound like something like this. Be faithful to God 
and he'll put you in places of power and prominence. This is a description of what happened to Daniel, not a guarantee of what will happen to us. We're instructed to be faithful whether or not we ever get to stand before the king, whether or not we ever become the second in command. Daniel and these friends found themselves in that position, but remember, they aren't the only ones that were taken into captivity. And I can't prove it, but my suspicion is there's at least a few other people who were themselves also faithful to God, but they didn't rise to the ranks and their names aren't written down in history and maybe someday we'll learn about them in eternity. So we need, to, we need to learn from these examples, but we need to not turn it into some sort of moralistic guarantee. Can you, can you hear me on that? We're going we're gonna to come back to this time and time again. It's gonna ha- I'm going to teach it, how I'm going to explain it. And I want to encourage you in that as you read stories in the Bible, to, to not turn them into something that they're not intended to be. Daniel was put into the place that he was put into for a specific reason, to encourage the people of Judah in the time of their exile to remain faithful to God while they await the promised Messiah. Now, at the end of this story, I've got some questions. You got some questions? I got some questions. For example, one of my questions, and I don't have the answer for it today, how much magic did they have to do? I mean, Daniel seems to be a real stickler about the food laws. Did he not read the magic laws in Deuteronomy too? I'm just curious. I don't know. Uh, I got questions like, was there anybody in the tribe of Judah that was like, hey, you know, Azariah, next time you're meeting with the king, take a knife with you and kill him. That really help us out. Like, I don't know. <laughs> But this chapter is written, I think, to really direct us toward one key question. And the question is this. How does one live a life of faithfulness to God in the middle of a hostile culture? You're removed from your homeland. Change of location. You you have a change of worship. You can't go to the temple. And even the temple doesn't have the vessels it needs for worship. It's a change of name. The cultures come in and tell them, no, this is your identity. This is who you are. This is what you're all about. And for crying out loud, it's even a change in food. Like everything is different. Everything has changed. All of these laws that God gave to Israel, how do I even obey them? All these laws about going to the temple at certain times of the year, I'm not allowed to. How do I follow God in the middle of a culture that has stripped all power away from me, that is, that is seemingly headed 180 degrees in the opposite direction. Friends, we're going to really have to stretch our imaginations to see how this might be relevant to us. I think that we see sometimes in history, uh, at different times, people, when, when they're taken into captivity, there's kind of a couple different impulses. One of the impulses might be towards what we could call fight. Okay, you took me into captivity. I'm going to stand my ground. I'm going to push back. I'm going to fight back until you either like kill me or give in or I win, right? It's this, it's this, I'm going to just constantly agitate. I'm going to fight. Some of you are wired that way. Some of you are like, yeah, that sounds like my office where I work, right? Like you're, you're just wired towards pushing back. Others, you see this, this impulse towards more of a flight. Okay, just keep your head down. Don't create waves. Don't rock the boat. Don't kick up any dust. Just shh, quiet. We don't have to tell anybody that we're from Israel. We don't have to tell anybody we're from Judah. Just kind of, you know. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? How many of you show of hands are more wired towards the fight impulse? That's me. Surprise. 
How many of you are maybe a little bit more wired towards the flight impulse? You're afraid to raise your hands right now. I get it. It's fine. (laughs) Think that God and his word would actually direct us toward neither fight nor flight, but something called faithfulness. We actually get some help from the prophet Jeremiah. I mentioned that Jeremiah is a contemporary of Daniel. He was writing before the exile. When the exile happened, he stayed in Jerusalem and he writes letters to the exiles. Daniel, we're actually going to see in chapter nine, Daniel is reading the prophet Jeremiah when he starts praying prayers of repentance and having these big visions. Jeremiah, there's an interesting story. There's a guy named Hananiah, who's also back in in Jerusalem. And Hananiah starts going around saying, hey, all you people of Judah, this whole exile thing, no big deal. Two years tops, everything's going to be back to normal. It's all going to be just fine. Don't worry about it. And Jeremiah comes into town and goes, you're a liar. You're speaking false things that did not come from God. And to prove it, you're going to die within the year. And Hananiah is like, that's crazy. I'm not. And then he falls down dead seven months later. He was, he was trying to comfort them with false hope. He's just like, you know, Hananiah's just saying flight, just kind of shut down. Don't worry about it. You're going to get to come back real soon. So Jeremiah writes a letter. He gets a message from God and Jeremiah writes a letter to these exiles. And this is what he says. You can read it in Jeremiah chapter 29. He says, this is the message from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel to the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. He says this, I want you to build houses and live in them. Well, no, I don't, I'm not going to be here. Only going to be here for two years. No, no, build a house, settle in. You're going to be there for a while. I want you to actually like plant gardens and eat of their fruit. Like start business, start adjusting to life in Babylon. I want you to, don't just like shrink back. I want you to take wives and have sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Like, like multiply there. Have kids. Don't just be like, well, I don't want to bring kids into this horrible Babylon. Like, no, have babies. Do it. Do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Raise your hand if you've heard this verse before. Okay? Context. They were kidnapped and forcibly removed from their home, imprisoned and enslaved in this new city. And God wants them to seek the welfare of this people? Oh, and to pray to the Lord on its behalf? I'll plant a garden. I ain't praying for these people. And God says, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. This is what God says, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Don't let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Don't listen to the dreams that they dream. It's a lie that they're prophesying to you in my name. I didn't send them, declares the Lord. The the Lord says this, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. It's going to be a while, 70 years, buckle up, but I'm going to visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and I will bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and hope. I know that we love to wrench that verse out of its context and declare it over our employment situation or whatever, but it's not not for us, but it's specifically about God promising 
to his people, Israel, I'm not done with you yet. This is how you're going to live while you're in your time of exile. I've got plans. I've got grace. I'm making promises. I'm going to give you a future and a hope. I'm going to visit you. I'm going to bring you back. And then you will call upon me and you'll come and you'll pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and you're going to find me. I'm not going to be distant. I'm not going to be far off. You, when you seek me with all your heart, your heart is going to want to seek me. God says, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and I will gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Do you see these promises of God? God promises that they're going to return to the land that they won't be scattered among the nations forever. And God promises that there will be a restoration of the temple. If you want to read about that, read in the book of Ezekiel, who is also prophesying around this same time. God says, I know the temple's been destroyed, but I've got a better temple coming. And God says, my presence is going to be with you. You're going to seek me and you're going to find me. I'm going to come visit you. Do you hear that relational closeness language? And God says, there's going to be a new king ruling over you. All these other prophets. Again, you got to read, there's so much literature that comes from this time period, but they start talking about a new king, one who is from the line of David, one who's from the tribe of Judah, like Daniel and his friends who will rule over the people. And God even promises that you're going to have new hearts that will remain faithful to the covenant. Though your fathers have been unfaithful, though they have sinned, though they have wandered, I'm going to give you a new heart, the prophet Jeremiah writes. Friends, we see that this time period in between the Old and the New Testaments, the, the people of Israel wrestling with, have these come true? Yeah, eventually Persia comes and takes over. We'll get to that in chapter five. And they send them back to the land and they, they rebuild the temple. But it says that some of the old men wept at the new temple, not tears of joy, because they remember how beautiful the temple used to be. And this new one was just terrible. We're back in the land, but it doesn't feel like God's with us. And we're not having prophetic messages. Where are these promises fulfilled? And then Jesus shows up on the scene. And he says, I'm the fulfillment of all of these promises. Do you know that Jesus went to the land of Israel? Jesus didn't go to Babylon. Jesus didn't go to Samaria. Jesus said, I've specifically come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he was raised up north in the northern tribes and he came down to Jerusalem in the southern part. He was all over the place talking about the message of God's forgiveness and the kingdom of God and the hope of the kingdom of God. And Jesus went to the temple that now Herod had built this new temple and everyone says, oh, this is so good. And Jesus goes, this is nothing. I want you to tear down this temple and in three days, I'll raise it back up again. And he restores the temple in himself. And the prophets speak of the Messiah as being Emmanuel or God with us. And the apostle John says that the word took on flesh and dwelt among us. That Jesus is God with us. That, that we will know the closeness of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And that Jesus is the only wise king. And he claimed to be a king. And he claimed to be the Messiah. And when he was crucified, there was a placard above his head that read, King of the Jews. That he is the one from the tribe of Judah. He is the one who's descended from the family line of David. And he's the one that will rule and reign over all God's people for all time. And it is by his death that we are given new hearts that want to obey. 
that when we look upon Christ Jesus, the, the crucified Messiah and the risen Messiah, the one who rose victoriously on the third day, and we look upon him and we have faith that we actually are given new hearts, like the prophet Jeremiah promised, hearts that would want to love and serve and obey God. Friends, Jesus is God's yes and amen to all of his promises. And now we who are Gentile believers, because I'm not Jewish, I'm not from the family line of Abraham. We who place our faith in Jesus are adopted into the family and we get to experience the blessing of all the promises that God has made to his people throughout all time. How good is that news? Now, here's where it gets really relevant. Because you think to yourself, well, that's great. That's good for them. They were in exile. But last time I checked, I hadn't been like forcibly removed from my home and taken into Babylon. But that's not the story that the New Testament authors tell. Jesus shows up and, and Peter, you remember Peter. How could you forget Peter? One of his letters, 1 Peter, he starts the letter by saying, hey, dear exiles who are chosen and dispersed throughout the known world. He intentionally uses the language of exiles about people who are followers of Jesus. So if you're a follower of Jesus, at least Peter thinks you're in exile. Well, what does that mean? I'm living in my homeland. Some of you grew up in the Seattle area and you've been here your whole life. Like I'm not in exile. Well, you are when you consider that John says that the whole world is under the power of the evil one. That no matter where you live, there is one who makes Nebuchadnezzar look like Mary Poppins. And he is trying to assert his authority. He's trying to assert his control, not just in the land of Babylon, not just in the land of Shinar, but over the entirety of the earth. So that now wherever we find ourselves as followers of Jesus, we have to come to grips with the fact that there are some warring kingdoms here. The apostle Paul comes along in Philippians and says, you know what? No matter what city you live in, no matter what nation you live in, your citizenship, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have an allegiance to a citizenship that's in heaven. So you might be an American, you might be a Canadian, eh? You might be, you know, whatever nation you're from, whatever citizenship, earthly citizenship you have, if you are in Christ, you have a different allegiance. And we live, we're we're to live while we wait For this lasting city, the author of Hebrews says, here we don't have our permanent home, but we await the city that is to come. Jesus died, he rose again, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and one day he will return, and this world will be restored and recreated in perfection. How many of you are looking forward to that day? And the cities of this earth, the nations of this earth, though they are under the power of the evil one now, that's not our primary allegiance And so in the meantime, Peter says, while you're waiting, live as exiles. Learn from the the people like Daniel and Azariah and Mishael and Hananiah. Learn from them. Learn how to live. Learn how to live as though your citizenship is in another place. And as though you have a higher allegiance to any king or prime minister or president, we have an allegiance to King Jesus that surpasses all of that. Amen? Amen. This is particularly relevant for us. How do we live faithful lives in the time of our exile? If you've placed your trust in Jesus, we're awaiting his return. Let me offer you three thoughts in closing. The first thought is this. You need to remember who's really in control. You're going to leave here today. 
Maybe you're going to check social media. Maybe you're going to turn on the news. Maybe you're going to get a text or a phone call from someone. And it's just going to be real easy to believe that the whole world is out of control. The world, the nations are at war. There's, there's conspiracies and there's all sorts of drama to get swept up in. What about your own personal life? You got family members having drama. You got issues at work. You got people that you know that have health issues. It'd be real easy to believe the lie that everything is out of control. And yet friends, we are assured as exiles that God is working behind the scenes. And though we don't always understand his timing and we don't always understand his methods, we can trust that he has not forgotten us and he has not abandoned us. Amen? Second, as we remember that God is in control, let's go seek the welfare of our cities. It'd be real easy for us to go into fight mode, especially as we are in a culture now that seems more actively headed away from biblical principles. It'd be real easy to go into protest and fight mode. Or it'd be real easy to go into fright and flight mode where just, well, I'm just going to put my head down, have my own little personal Bible studies and never engage. And God is calling us to be faithful, to seek the welfare of our city. That's why we're doing things like in a few weeks, we're going to come and we're going to set up shop here at Linwood High School as all the teachers go back to school for us to come and bring them goodies and coffee and treats to say, we love you. We meet here on Sundays. Thanks for letting us use your space. And if you need anything, prayer or otherwise, you know where to find us. We're going to try to seek the welfare of Linwood High School, which this building is as big as a city probably, you know. We, we, this is why we do things with foster care. This is why we do things even next weekend with the golf scramble where people are going to go play golf to try to raise money so we can do like local mission outreach. Friends, I want people in Linwood and Bothell and Edmonds and, and, and the surrounding North Puget Sound cities to miss us if we suddenly were disappear, to disappear. Seek the welfare of your city. And then number three, lastly, be faithful in the little things. You know, there's a lot of very little day-to-day choice. I hear this from people. They literally will say things like, what's the big deal with fill in the blank? Be faithful in the little things. You know what I saw? This is, struck me this morning. Here's a little thing that I saw this morning. I saw a group of people show up at seven o'clock this morning and set all this equipment up and go back and set up the kids' ministry stuff. And I was thinking like, nobody in our culture does that. Sundays are for sleeping in or in a few weeks for the American worship event known as NFL football. That's what Sundays are for. Sundays are me time. And yet there's people just getting up, setting up. You're here. You're gathered for worship. That's weird. You're at church on a Sunday morning. That's weird. You're weirdos. (laughs) Throughout this week, you're going to be faced with little choices at work, at school, in your families, whatever. And maybe the culture says, what's the big deal? And yet God knows and he sees and he's with you and he's pleased by every act of faithful obedience that we do in loving response to him. So, exiles, we need to ask the Lord to help us. Will you pray with me? Father God, thank you for your faithfulness to the people of Israel at this time. God, thank you that as we read this story, we can be assured that you're faithful to us as well. Lord Jesus, would you keep our eyes on you during the time of this exile while we await your return, while we live in a world and in a culture that oftentimes seems 180 degrees opposite from from you and your ways and your commandments. Lord God, would you 
Help us to remember that you're in control and would you help us to seek the welfare of our cities while we await. Lord Jesus, now as we gather at the table, would you strengthen and nourish us and restore us so that we might live lives of faithfulness to you. And as we lift our voices and sing, would you help us to remember our primary allegiance is to our King Jesus and we await the lasting city that is to come. We pray this all in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Aaron. We're going to respond now to Jesus through the Lord's Supper. I'll invite the younger students class to join us when they're ready. Um, Communion is a time where, for those of us who are following Jesus, who have given our lives to Jesus, are trusting in and trying to live our lives following him, for us to gather around the table and to uh, pray, to reflect, to examine our hearts, and continuing this theme of being living as exiles, uh, like Daniel, uh, the the difference is we know that this is temporary. Our life here in this, uh, in this world, this earth that we're living in, this brokenness, it's temporary. And beca- it's because of Christ. It's because of his sacrifice on the cross in our place for the forgiveness of our sins that we have the hope of eternal life someday that we will get to be with him in eternity forever. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 11. It says, The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We take the bread and the cup, and, and we partake in communion as a way to reflect, to remember Jesus' sacrifice for us. But then Paul uh, continues, to, and he encourages us to examine our hearts. He says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So this morning, as we reflect on Jesus' sacrifice, I would encourage you also to take a moment, pause, Uh, reflect, examine your hearts. Ask the Lord, where is it in my life that I'm not living my life for Jesus? Where am I uh, in unrepentant sin? Where do I need to to trust in him more? And so just take take some time, reflect. We'll give you a moment to, to pause and really reflect and think about that. If you have the elements, you can go ahead and take those out. Um, I'm going to pray, and then when you're ready, take communion and then join us as we stand and sing and worship Jesus. Let me pray. God, thank you that we, while we're sojourners in this place, in this world, we have the hope of eternal life. And it's because of Jesus Christ that we are set free from our sin and we have this amazing hope this joy that the world doesn't know. God, I pray for those this morning that maybe don't know you, who aren't living their lives uh, following you. God, would you, Holy Spirit, stir in their hearts and help us to, help all of us to grow more in love with you, uh, to show the world around us your love, demonstrate that to the people in our lives. And we thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice in our place. We pray that as we respond now through the Lord's Supper, I pray, God, that you would just encourage us, renew us, Um, We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.